You sounded a second behind. <laughs> you want me to do it again? Nope. It's fine. <laughs> I was well, doing in it, my I audio, do it. you always sound a second behind, Lindsay, but I let it. So that's exactly what we do every time. Okay. It's fine. <laughs> I'll figure it out. I'll take the blame. Yeah. We'll figure it out. This whole episode is just going to be me blaming Becky. Like, <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Becky's. Because of Becky. Thank you for being that's... here and taking all the blame off of me. That's I'm fine. so excited. I'm happy to do it. I'll do it. <laughs> I feel anytime. like an angel. <laughs> <laughs> anytime something goes wrong from here on out, you could be like, well, Becky was there. Ugh. She was just quiet. Yeah. I'm going to blame you in all the episodes from now on. Perfect. Yep. So, Becky, my childhood best friend, we knew each other from the second she was born, basically. She was neighbors really? growing up. From the second you were born? She was there. She was the in birth? the room. At the christening? <laughs> yeah. at, at two months old, she yep. was there. Okay. All right. Yeah, we grew up together and are still best friends. <laughs> Good job. I can tell you really put a lot of thought into this intro. I really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> three quarters of this episode is going to get cut oh yeah we record for like hours so you're saying the intro is going to get cut out <laughs> yeah <laughs> like who's becky <laughs> she's the reason everything's going wrong <laughs> if you want something to get cut out just start talking about really controversial things and she'll just cut yeah. it all out suddenly perfect yeah yep. perfect so so, Becky, you, as you self-proclaimed, you know nothing about art, and specifically, Nada. you know nothing about Chris Burden, right? Correct. Okay. Wait, nothing about art? Like, what's the like, m- most you know? The, I feel like the did you test. Did well, you watercolor, like, in <laughs> kindergarten, or I don't know? <laughs> I watched, paint? okay, we've known each other, Lindsay and I have known each other our whole lives. I watched Lindsay do the art stuff, and I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> oh, you just stood by, you were like, that seems... Oh, yeah. Like if we were doing a project and there was any art aspect, I'm like, you handle this part <laughs> and I'll do whatever else. And the planning and anything else you'd and like the planning, to take on. Anything with like technology too. I just was really great moral support <laughs> and I would pretend that I would just tell her what to do. And she was really good acted at Like I added cooking? value. Yeah. I would make her snacks. Yep. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're just different versions of a similar person. Yeah, I think so. 100%. Yeah. She just yeah. met a different version of you later. <laughs> I was like, I like this person. She's a lot like this other person I like. <laughs> mm. um, okay, Olive, oh, how much do you know about Chris Burden? Well, I watched the documentary. So, oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> I watched it a long time ago, actually, when okay. you told me to okay. watch it, which never yeah. happens. Um, so that's did you great. Have a, did you have a moment before and after it? Because I definitely did. I had a certain idea of what I thought about Chris Burden before, and it totally changed after watching the documentary. Yeah. So, well, in art school, one of the like, I want to say one of the things that like makes you become like, I am an artist is like you learn random shit about famous artists and then you like feel like you're in the, in the community, you know? And this was (laughs) one of the things like, oh yeah, there's that performance artist that shot himself or whatever. And you're just like, yeah. yeah. And you love to like bring it up with your family member. I do love to bring mm-hmm. it up with your family members. Like, yeah, it's art mom. Like, <laughs> you know, shooting yourself. <laughs> and they're just like, 
<laughs> okay. Um, I'm sure mom was thrilled. She loved I'm it. an artist and this guy's an artist. She loved he shot himself. <laughs> she loved everything about art school. She was my mom's I just like, constantly. can't you just paint trees? My mom kept being like, won't you just paint flowers so I can hang it above my couch? Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, and you're like, no, no let me draw naked people. I love penises. <laughs> Um, but I should have gotten to art school. <laughs> I also saw Chris Burden, one of his pieces, and I didn't realize at the one at LACMA with the cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't realize it was the same person. So I saw that mm-hmm. at the end of college, and I didn't know that that was him. I also didn't know that the LACMA, that the light posts were his either. So mm-hmm. I feel like I encountered him, but didn't understand him or have any context. So. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I watched a documentary documentary so long ago that I feel like this will be semi-fresh. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. I rewatched it again. When I first watched it, I was like, wow, everything I'm doing is not important in yeah. any way whatsoever. <laughs> and then months passed, and I'm like, yeah, things are great. I'm making work again. And then I watched it again a couple weeks ago. I'm like, yep, everything I'm doing is not important in any way whatsoever. It's very depressing. <laughs> yeah. Why would you watch it again? <laughs> to make this podcast episode. I didn't well, do also research. It's just He sounds in- inspiring. Inspiring. That's, really? I hate that fucking word, but it really is. Like <laughs> You watch it and you just feel like bubbles in your chest that are coming. You're like, I have to make something. I got to do. Mm-hmm. S- look at all this. He's just so... You know, you just stop finishing your sentences. What? Well, I was just going to do our intro before oh, we yeah, forget. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Go. <clears throat> All right. Welcome. Welcome to, to Middlebrow. Uh, this is my best friend, Lindsay Schultz, and her best friend, Becky something. It doesn't matter. You don't need to know her <laughs> last name because that would be weird to say that on air. Um, And, and these- you say your part. <laughs> And these are my two best friends, Worlds Colliding, Becky Weaver slash Wyden, and Olive Moya. Hello. I knew and her growing up as Becky Weaver, but she is now Becky Wyden. Oh, yeah, that's weird to change. To change your name? No, I just mean to change it in your brain if you grew up oh. with someone. Mm-hmm. People it's not weird to change your hyphenate, name. hyphenate, and I'm like, Weaver. I'm not going to be a Weaver Wyden. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, smart. I agree with that. Um, and this is Middlebrow, a mostly contemporary art podcast hosted by two completely average human artists. That's us. Oh, and Becky, who's not an artist. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Um, we talk about art. We try really hard to be interesting. And it's for artists, but it's also for people who don't know anything about art, but are interested, uh, which is Becky in this situation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she's that interested, but I dragged her on. <laughs> I just forced her. <laughs> yeah. And for people that don't know anything about art, but are just forced to be here Mm -hmm. against their will. Yep. Um, Is that it? Trust us. We're right there with you. It kind of got lost. It's fine. Trust us. We are right there with you. You edit all of this? Yep. (laughs) Takes a long time. Mm -hmm. Don't act like you don't love it. She loves it. Mm -hmm. I'll be sitting on the computer editing and just cracking up to myself. And George will walk by, look at me like she thinks she's so funny. (laughs) We are funny. Yeah. We are. Brad thinks we're funny. Brad Jeff thinks oh, I need we're to funny. send Brad stickers. Oh, shit. <laughs> Who's Brad? <laughs> Is he real? Yeah, yes. he's real. Okay. We love Brad. He was our very first Patreon like years ago when we started it, mm-hmm. and he's our, still our only. Well, there may be one other person. Mm-hmm. 
but he's the best. So. Hi, Brad. <laughs> yes. Hello, Brad. Hi, Brad. I'm Pete. Pete? Is that his name? Jeff. Fuck. Sorry, <laughs> Jeff. Love you. <laughs> Are you guys ready to be inspired and extremely disappointed in your own lives with Chris Burden? Absolutely. <laughs> Let's do it. Yep. Yes. <laughs> ready um okay so chris is an american artist in performance installation and sculpture and he's one of the most well-known performance artists of the 1970s and probably if anyone thinks of performance art they're for sure going to think of chris burden he is probably the most well-known practitioner of the subgenre of body art um and in that field Artists documented themselves in still or moving images as they gained or lost weight, underwent surgery, or in his case, courted genuine danger. Clearly, I didn't write that part. (laughs) (laughs) I wish you did. I know. (laughs) Um, I also added, he has a wonderful voice to listen to. When I was Mm. listening to the documentary, he just, I could listen to him talk about his work forever. He should have had a podcast. Okay. Baby Burden. Mm-hmm. Burden was born in Boston on April 11th, 1946. His dad was an engineer and his mom was a biologist and an art restorer. He grew Those up two in, really different things. Sorry. Right? Science and art. It's a weird combination. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Who the fuck does that? That's weird. But I guess the restoring part of art is kind of science-y. So oh, yeah. that would be science yeah. for sure. Yeah. So he grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and thanks to his father's professional travels, also in China, Switzerland, France, and Italy. Even though they went to, him and his sister went to really amazing schools and traveled a lot, experienced a ton of culture, he appeared like he lived on the edge of society. His dad was a consultant for MIT. In one story, he said he came back to his house Uh, Chris was saying this and his dad was sitting watching some bullshit TV program and he thought it was ridiculous so he grabbed something like a brick and threw it at the TV and and broke it while his dad was watching it and then just went to his room and apparently his dad just sat there thought about it and then was like yep that's fine and just went to his room. This That's is a parent who's been through way too much that day already and it's just like, you know what? I'm I just don't even want to do this right now. I'm just That's going also, to bed. <laughs> That's also how he ended up doing this stuff. Like subconsciously he was like it's totally fine to just throw bricks at things or shoot right. yourself or whatever you feel There's like doing. Literally no, no consequence. Yeah, it's great. It's fine. Whereas like my mom would have punched me in the face if I did that. What a different kid to be like, my parent is wasting their time watching this to think about that at age 12 already. I'm like, yeah. Briar Horses, la, 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 la. <laughs> yeah. I like Crayola markers. Yeah. But also just the decision making there. Like, it's one thing to think it's bullshit, but then to be like, I must throw a brick at the yeah. TV is just a whole nother level. Yeah, I feel like the parents probably got rid of all the bricks near the house after that incident. <laughs> what the fuck is a brick doing near the? T- They're like, we just have these I bricks. I like how we're around. following this thread of brick when I said it's probably a brick, but in my notes it just says he threw something. <laughs> 
It could have been. It had to be something really heavy to break yeah, the TV. Which is yeah, why <laughs> he assumed it was a brick, an ashtray. But the it's more probably we've... an ashtray. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that makes way yeah. more sense. An ashtray yeah. is basically a round brick. Yeah. Yep. At the age of 12, Burden had emergency surgery performed without anesthesia. What? No. Yeah. (laughs) Such a bad idea. Um, Which maybe gives him the, like, physical, like, pain threshold for his later works. But anyways, so without anesthesia on his left foot after having been severely injured in a motor scooter crash on Elba, which is an island in Italy. During the long convalescence that followed, he became deeply interested in visual art, particularly in photography. And then he went to school. He got his BA in visual arts, physics, and architecture at Pomona College. Everybody at Pomona College. I know. (laughs) Nothing is in Pomona. I don't understand. (laughs) So before he wanted to be an artist, he wanted to be an architect until he worked at an architect's office and he saw Harvard graduates who had studied for eight years sitting at a desk drawing bathrooms. And he said it was very discouraging. He didn't. He want- just threw a brick at them. He was like, this is bad. <laughs> they were like, dude, my bathroom. <laughs> now I got to figure out a new place for the toilet. <laughs> he said it was very discouraging. He didn't want to work that hard and wait till he was 55 to make the decisions because he was just like the people in charge were super older men and then all the graduates just had to do those technical little drawings day after day and he's like i want to make stuff now but isn't that just everything is like Mm -hmm. like (laughs) yep until those old white men retire or die yeah we're all just waiting for their positions (laughs) (laughs) instead of that he became a sculptor the head of his department said, it's bad enough to be an artist, but to be a sculptor is suicide. Oh. <laughs> Inspiring. <laughs> and then he said that only the made... The head of him- sculpture said this <laughs> The head of his, I don't know, art department. Oh. But still, he's like, we offer it. Don't do it. But I just don't. wouldn't do it. Do not. <laughs> it's a bad idea. Um. And then he said that that only made him want to do it even more. I was just, just like, going to prove say. everyone wrong. <laughs> He's like, hey, I've had surgery without anesthesia. I think I'll be <laughs> I fine. I can do anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he married his first wife, Barbara Burden, in 1967. She went to work so she could basically support Chris's art career. Um, she was also in a lot of his early work, for example, where she lied naked while he shot match rockets at her in a piece <laughs> called Match Piece 1972. And you can see these photos. He's like in front of these two little TVs and he's just setting off match rockets and they're like flying in a nice big arc in a gallery space and landing on her as she's lying on the ground naked. I want to know how he sold this to her. Apparently, like, no one else would volunteer for this piece. And so why? his... Why? <laughs> um, I feel like, though, if you marry Chris Burden... You know what you're You're a for. specific type of person. Yeah. You already mm-hmm. know. He's probably thrown many ashtrays at her already. And she was like, you know, rockets She goes, at least it's just, not a brick. Yeah. It's not a brick or an <laughs> ashtray. So now he's adding rockets. So... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and she said that they would obviously burn her, so she would flick them off as soon as they land on her. Did that ruin the piece? Wasn't she supposed to lie still? Did he get mad and he's like, Probably. I had surgery without <laughs> anesthesia. I think you can handle <laughs> this. This is not hard. 
<laughs> Everyone is weak. So he received his MFA at the University of California, Irvine, where his teachers included people like Robert Irwin, um, which doesn't mean anything to you, Becky, or maybe you, Olive. <laughs> Not even to me. <laughs> <laughs> My first thought was like, isn't that the, the crocodile guy? Or no, that's, no, um, that's <laughs> Steve Irwin. <laughs> I was yep. about to say Jeff. Fucking <laughs> Jeff and Pete and Steve getting mixed up in my mind. <laughs> Jeff Irwin. The- <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> um, so he went to UC Irvine from 1969 to 1971. While at UCI, there were these horrible lockers that they described in their graduate gallery. But he just said, and everyone was like, they're so ugly. They're such a nuisance, blah, blah, blah. And Chris <laughs> saw them and was like, this is perfect. So there are these cube lockers they're two foot by two foot by two foot and so he decided to make a piece where he sat in one for five days in 1971 and he would drink water from a five gallon bottle stored in the locker above him and then pee into another five gallon bottle in the locker below him and it's called five day locker piece was he not that big of a person i'm like am i just not really good at (laughs) contorting your body it's like no i'm just like can a human fit in a space like that yep he said he just crouched basically the whole time that's all hmm. that's all it takes yep yeah okay. good croucher but apparently his work while in school was so intense his department wasn't sure if he was dangerous or crazy but like everything he would do oh. it would just make people super nervous um <laughs> i can't just, imagine yeah. why <laughs> <laughs> is he still married at this point <laughs> yeah he's crouching yep. in lockers mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. uh <laughs> She just felt like, great, a five-day break from this guy. (laughs) (laughs) And stop getting burned. (laughs) Um, She's also paying for this education while he's crouching in lockers. She's, like, mm -hmm. working her ass off so he can crouch in a locker and pee into a a bucket. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She's like, this is well worth all my time. (laughs) (laughs) He said, sculpture forces the viewer to be active physically active and if you take the reduction the minimalism sculpture is action so like at this time he was looking at his peers making you know paintings and two-dimensional works and he was really interested in sculpture where you had to like you force the viewer to move and interact with it and so still in school he made these sculptures intended to be interacted with like they're kind of like art workout equipment type things Mm. um But people would just come in and look at them as sculptures not to be interacted with. And was just like, oh, this is so lovely. Look at them. Look at these sculptures and just walk around them like everyone does when they're in a gallery. And they're like, don't get too close. Don't touch them. Um, (laughs) Visitor. So he was like, that's not the point. These objects were devices meant to make you the sculpture. But people weren't doing that. So he was, you know, clearly upset that it wasn't coming across. So also in 1971, he created a piece called Shout Piece. And he describes, I was seated on a platform suspended 14 feet above the floor. My hair was braided and my face was covered with red body paint. Four 500 watt movie lights were placed around me facing the front entrance of the space. My voice was amplified by three speakers. As people entered the gallery, I repeatedly yelled at them, get the fuck out, get out immediately. 
because the sound was very loud and contained high frequency feedback most people left quickly <laughs> well that one worked <laughs> yep um yeah and he it was just described that people would come in to look at the piece he would be yelling at them and it was like an endurance piece for the viewers to see like how long they could physically handle being in there before they're like yep i'm out of here yeah um were, were they given hmm. instructions beforehand like to know you're supposed to see how long you can stay or was it like oh wrong room where's the sculpture where's the, like... <laughs> yeah no no instructions yeah i, I would have gotten out there real quick like oh sorry <laughs> <laughs> sorry looks like you're busy in here standing on a platform with lights and telling me to get the fuck out so. and braided hair <laughs> his peers said he was radicalizing them that they felt their paintings would no longer cut it yeah i'm glad they feel like how i feel though yeah you know like just... <laughs> everyone felt like they weren't good enough at this point yeah um uh so him and like a group of his peers uh went in on a gallery space i think it was like a work space but a gallery space you know that they called f space where they would test the boundaries of what art could be and this is so like 70s where everyone's just hosting these performances and happenings and galleries, mm -hmm. you know, like it's like art parties all the time. And in an inflated art market, they were creating work that couldn't be bought or sold. They were back in control. But they just needed to marry someone to get them I was through. just to say, so how do they make a living? Like, how do they pay their bills? <laughs> They're like, we won. We're making nothing. A lot of time they just sleep in that space. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know how they got the space, but a lot yeah. of, I feel like this happens over and over and over and over mm -hmm. where like groups of young artists just do this thing and they just be crazy and try to push all the boundaries and sleep in their studio slash gallery space and have big parties and then... I don't know. <laughs> then nope. Somehow and they some of them make it. <laughs> or it's really about like confidence. Don't you? That just like all of our, you, everybody just acted like they were the shit. Yeah, we have this cool gallery space and we make these cool things and people would come because they're like, what is cool? Nobody knows. And then that's just, yeah. you just assume that these people are that are doing weird things know more than you do. And so you're just like, I guess this is cool now. And then you support it and that just gets the ball rolling. So... Prelude to 220 or 110, 1971. In this piece, he was almost naked. He's wearing these little tiny kind of like boxer shorts and bolted down to the concrete floor with copper cuffs on his neck, wrists, and calves. And um, on either side of him, about like five, six feet away, are two rubber buckets filled with water and a live uh 100 lines coming out of them i don't know if people will get 100 lines sounds like 100 like cocaine <laughs> 100 lines of cocaine 100 lines coming out of the bucket like how did they pay Whatever for that, that. <laughs> <laughs> okay someone had to have a job here we're just a drug selling hookup. selling drugs yeah <laughs> um like an extension like, cord thing like plugged into like an electrical yeah. Shit. <laughs> yep. So it's plugged into an outlet above the bucket and going down and sitting in the bucket of water. Dangerous is the main thing. Mm -hmm. What you're told not to do. Yep. Yeah. Yes. That's children. Do and not put a hundred lines into a water <laughs> bucket and plug electric it. Whether it's cocaine or, cocaine. or electric. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> um, and the resolution of the piece is up to the viewer. Do they kick the buckets over or not? 
And so he likes sorry, kick the bucket. And it just I'm like he's definitely gonna kick the bucket. <laughs> he basically liked creating these environments where there was like inherent tension in the room just by these situations that he would construct. So he liked the potential of his life being in someone else's hands. But people were so aware of the situation and the implications that they ended up going nowhere near the buckets and giving him like a ton of space. The piece was performed 8 to 10 p.m. for three nights. One of his most famous pieces is called Shoot. And it was performed on November 19th, 1971. Do you guys want to watch the YouTube clip of it? You should, definitely. Becky. Okay. Yeah. Can I click it? That poor guy who had to shoot him. <laughs> I just feel bad for him. He's all old. I know. And he's just like, I'm about to, I pulled to the left for some reason. And then he got white. And I just, I didn't expect what? that. It's like, yeah, you shot him in the arm. He's going to be turn white and be freaked out. Well, this is something only 20-year-olds would do. Yeah. Right? No one older than that would be like, oh, yeah, I'll shoot you. <laughs> No, because 20 year olds don't have any idea of consequence. And yeah. clearly Chris never had consequences for any of his actions. His wife didn't divorce him when he was throwing matches at her. Yep. His dad didn't yell at him, discipline for- him when he was throwing bricks. Like nothing bad has ever had. He yells at people in galleries and then they just walk away. Like he has no consequences. He's just super emboldened. <laughs> analyze him like a dog physically and mentally mentally dominant physically dominant (laughs) he's an he's a beta he really wants to be an alpha but he's not (sighs) no one should have ever owned chris burden (laughs) (laughs) okay in this piece called shoot they're in f space the gallery and chris is standing against the white wall and about 10 feet away or so, right? Mm-hmm. Um, his friend is standing there with a rifle. And they've invited viewers there to come watch. And they say, okay, are you ready? And then his friend shoots him. But the idea behind this piece, Chris says, everybody has fantasized about being shot. You see it in the news, on TV, in movies. So everybody, especially in America, has thought about it. It's as American as apple pie. Have you thought about being shot? Like, I feel like fantasize is like too strong of a word. <laughs> <laughs> I've been scared of the of it happening, but mm-hmm. I've never fantasized about it. So, Lindsay, I told you about what I thought about. What was it? A few months ago, when I was out on a walk. Oh with yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He fantasized about it. She's like, who am I going to text when I get shot? (laughs) I'm just, you know, your mind goes to these places where I'm like, I'm out on a walk. I'm like, what would happen if I got shot right now? Like, what would I do? What would be my order of operations? Mm -hmm. Would I text my husband first? I love that it was text. And then... Because you know, hey, I guess no it depends deal. on where I got Just shot. I got if shot. I could, <laughs> so if you could come T-T-Y-L. whatever. Hopefully, BRB G two G to the hospital. Well, no, because I was thinking if he was close enough to come get me and take me to the hospital, or do I just call nine one one? I don't. I don't even remember where my mind went with it, but I was thinking about it for way too long. <laughs> it's not urgent enough to call him. I don't want to disturb yeah. you. No, with, no, no. Of our age, we don't call. Only text. Like, could this have been a text message? <laughs> 
I think uh, in that situation, no is the answer. It couldn't have been a text message. Yeah, but when you have kids, like, okay, what are you going to do with the kids? Like, I'll let him know. Like, you still got to stay with the kids. That's different than being shot. I'll go. I'll go to the. It's different than being shot. What you're talking about is a different situation than when you're shot and you need to communicate. Don't yes. you think? I mean, it depends on where you're shot. Like, what if I was shot where I couldn't speak? <laughs> what if it just grazed you a little bit? That's a text message. Yeah, yeah. that's a text. Yeah. yeah. It's a major, be, arter- major since, artery. Since I mean, you don't call, wouldn't he be freaked out if you called? It would be like a rush to the phone situation. No, because I feel like if I called, he'll be like, why is she calling me? Why didn't she just, <laughs> just me? It? I'll let it go to voicemail. <laughs> uh, okay. Right. Um, okay, so so no, I wait, have not. Have you thought about? about I know shot. Lindsay's thought about being shot. I don't thought know about, about being killed in every which way. Yeah. Oh, I have been shot, not with like a what? real gun, what? with um, with a <laughs> with a um, with a BB gun. Oh, so oh, does that count? Yeah, point blank in the temple. Wow. Oh my god, that sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it hurt. No, no. At Thanksgiving this last year, my brother swore that he was the one that got shot. And I he took like, no. your story. How can you he, imagine? He took my story, <laughs> and he's eight years older than I am. So I'm like, you should really remember this. I was four. Hmm. Now I'm thinking maybe he got shot and it wasn't you. <laughs> no, because then we text my sister. We're like, hey, who years ago somebody got shot? Who was it? She goes, you don't remember? I shot you. <laughs> and then the FBI showed up at her house. <laughs> This is why it's good to have three children, because then yeah. one can always be the decider. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So his friend slash peer had been in the army, so he asked him to be the one to shoot him. The plan was to graze his arm, like one little scratch on the side of his arm, and just like one drop of blood. The question then being, have you been shot or haven't you? And they didn't even have like a first aid kit or <laughs> call or text. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't plan on anything going wrong because they're 20. Why would they? Yeah. Nothing could go wrong with live (laughs) firearms. They didn't have a first aid kit, like no bandages, nothing. And so when viewers got to the room, they said it was so charged that they felt like his life was in their hands. They didn't want to cough or make any sounds because that could make things go awry. And so when his friend Bruce pulled the trigger, the gun kind of moved a little bit to the left. And so instead of grazing his arm... It shot through his arm. Well, through and through is supposed to be good, right? So it didn't graze him like he had wanted. And in the video, you see like Chris get shot and he like grabs his arm and stumbles forward, which is like. Yeah, he was shook in that moment. And then he catches himself. (laughs) Bruce said Chris's face immediately went white and there had to be an official police report because any bullet wound requires one. It's intense. Yeah. 20 year old boys. Are a problem. <laughs> Just all around a problem. <laughs> oh, How old yay. is he? So if he was, this is 1971. Becky, can you do math? It's Where's 1971. Oh he was born 46. 25? Is that 25? Is anyone checking my math? Nope. No. Nope. <laughs> okay. for We don't do math no. on this podcast. If I'm, how about this? If you, if I'm wrong, edit it. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. wait. I'm going to check it. 71 minus 46. 25, yes. It's great job. job. We will trust you <laughs> I forever I contributed now. something. The next piece is called TV Hijack, February 9th, 1972. This poor woman. Okay, so his, <laughs> his friend. Good teaser. <laughs> his friend, Phyllis Lutjeans, 
Is, <laughs> well, her name's a problem, first of all. That's probably what Phyllis he thought, too. Lutt- is that why she's a poor woman? Yeah. <laughs> Just that. <laughs> um, she should definitely take someone else's name. It's a weaver whited. Nope. <laughs> weaver lut jeans. <laughs> she was doing a cable TV show and asked her friend, Chris, to come do a piece on the show. And he called her and said, Phyllis, are you sure? And she was like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be great. <laughs> and then the night before he called again and was like, are you sure? Like, are She's you like, just don't bring any bricks or ashtrays and we'll be fine. <laughs> or guns. You know, she's like... Why are you asking so many times? She didn't get it that he was going to be a problem. Be Chris. Yeah. Per usual. Yeah. Especially when you get asked multiple times, like, are you sure? That should raise a couple red flags. I immediately second guess everything. I'm like, well, now I'm not. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And she was just like, yeah, 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 yeah. And so Chris arrived to the show with like a group in the documentary was like with an entourage. Um, And in his belt, he had a small knife. And she joked, she's like, oh, are we going to have a little bloodletting today? And he didn't say a word back. Oh, no. He just says, are you sure, Phyllis? <laughs> Phyllis, I asked you if you were sure, and you said yes, and now the train's already yeah, left the station. We're in it now. <laughs> um, so the show began as an interview, um, I guess like all of her normal shows go. And then suddenly he got up, walked over to Phyllis, and put the knife up to her neck. And in the second photo, I don't know if you guys can zoom in, but like she looks legitimately terrified. And she said she was. She was like, has he officially lost it now? He said that he wanted the station to turn it on to live. And if they didn't turn it on to live, that he was going to do something to Phyllis. And so about 20 seconds or so, it took them 20 seconds to determine. I'm like, I'd be kind of pissed if I were Phyllis. Yeah. Kind of like, you guys weren't sure? No. They're like, is Phyllis worth it? No. And then they decided her life was worth it and turned mm-hmm. it on to live. So touching. And then afterwards, he demanded to be given the station's recording of the event. And then he destroyed the tape. And she said, I knew then and I know now he was going to shift art history. Like, even when he does something crazy like this, people yeah. are still like, like wow. he's amazing. Look at him. <laughs> yeah. Look at him threatening people's lives the on live television. The way he held that knife against my neck. <laughs> pretty, pretty sure I'd be like, fuck you, Chris. Don't ever <laughs> want to see you Chris, <laughs> this is against the friend rules. You can't just <laughs> yeah. fucking try to cut my neck. Lindsay, don't get any ideas. Are you sure? I'll be like, are you sure? <laughs> Lindsay's like, my work's not important enough. I need to cut Becky first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're in separate rooms yeah. now. I know. Jeez. <laughs> then he did a piece called Bed Piece 1972. I really love his <laughs> <Sorry>. titles. <laughs> I'm just looking at the pictures and mm-hmm. I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure I do this art. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> You're just not yep. Chris Burton. You yeah. didn't shoot no. yourself first. That's the prerequisite. No. <laughs> so he said, for describing Bed Piece... Josh Young asked me to do a piece for the Market Street program from February 18th to March 10th. And he said, are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I told him I would need a single bed in the gallery. At noon on February 18th, I took off my clothes and got into bed. I hadn't given any other instructions and I didn't speak to anyone during the piece. I remained in bed for 22 days. Mm, mm, mm. At first, it was That's very- too long. 
<laughs> At first, it was very hard. The first two days were very boring and very painful, and I realized I wasn't anywhere near the end, and I didn't see how I could go on. But by the end, or the middle, or the second week, I had begun to establish a routine. I began to... <laughs> right side. A routine of just laying. Left side. Yeah. Like, it was the end, or the middle, or the second week. <laughs> just such a vague time reference. Did he eat? Probably not. He loves to be in pain. And I began to sort of enjoy it there. And my days were very full and very rich. And I had a very peaceful feeling. And as the piece neared ending, neared closing, I started feeling regret about leaving. I started feeling like I wanted to stay and I actually considered staying, but I knew that if I stayed that I would be forced to leave anyway and that people would have considered me crazy. I mean, I knew that they were going to end it for me, but the fact that I was tempted and that I was very seduced into it, to me, that is the strangest part about this piece. Some of the energy, I think, of what was going on in my head was sort of conveyed to the other people. I had a strange power around me and sort of like a bubble or a repulsive magnet. Most people wouldn't come close to me. In fact, most people seemed frightened. <laughs> he probably stank. Yeah. That's why people didn't want to get close to him. <laughs> also, you've repeatedly been Assaulted violent. Like, yeah. They just like literally yelled at them, are. go away. They're like accosted or threatened. Yeah, or they're like he has a knife under that but blanket. I, but for I like sure. that, that his in his mind, staying in bed was when he's like, oh, if I do this, people will think I'm crazy. <laughs> so None crazy. of the other stuff, but staying in bed. <laughs> <laughs> to him that was crazy he's yep. like not harming someone for 22 days weird it's insane <laughs> it's, it's, lock me up <laughs> then there was a journalist terry mcdonnell he was really interested in chris he had heard and seen about him <laughs> stop trying to ask him to do things it's a bad idea <laughs> um was really interested in his piece and so he called him about doing like a feature on him and so Chris invited Terry to document a new piece. And so uh, he wanted to do a piece where he shot at an airplane taking off from LAX and the photograph would be the work. And Terry said, you're not actually going to hit it, are you? And Chris just gave him a look. <laughs> Wait, with that tiny little ass gun? You're not going to hit that plane up in the sky, are you? So this piece is called 747, and it was performed approximately at 8 a.m. on January 5th, 1973. I really like this piece. It's funny. <laughs> did the plane it's more that, funny like, than the other ones. Did they know they were going to be shot at? <laughs> no. <laughs> Chris doesn't ask for permission. No, way the fuck up in the air. <laughs> um, Terry said in the documentary, quote, whether or not he ever crossed a line, I heard debated. I thought that was simple-minded. You know, what line? He's moving the line. That's the point. What if art is violent? What if art hurt? What if it was painful? What if it scared the shit out of you? Is that art? He liked that idea, I think. Several years later, Burden was also interviewed by the FBI after the photo... Big surprise. Strange. Big surprise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, after a photograph of the piece was published in the magazine. 
A calling card was left by the FBI at his studio, and a meeting took place at his lawyer's house. Burden's lawyer explained the nature of Burden's work in performance art to the FBI agent. <laughs> that must have been a fun conversation. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine being his attorney? Just like, no, Chris, what, what did you do? Yeah. What? Oh, God damn it. Didn't we talk about this? Oh. Now I gotta like, tell I gonna, this FBI How guy? am I gonna spin this? <laughs> Burden said of the act that Quote, the plane wasn't in any danger. I went down to the beach and fired a few shots at a plane flying overhead. I wasn't trying to shoot the plane down. It was more of a gestural th- thing, trying to get it photographed to make an image. Burden said in a 1980 interview with David Ro- David Robbins that he told the FBI that the piece was about, quote, the goodness of man, the idea that you can't regulate everybody. At the airport, everybody's being searched for guns, and here I am on the beach, and it looks like I'm plucking planes out of the sky. You can't regulate the world. And he has, like, this little tiny revolver that he's shooting yeah. the plane with. Why is anybody worried? Seems silly. Yeah. Later, he was in an Esquire article about 10 important men of 1973. Don't mention any women. Yeah, fuck time. them. <laughs> They're not important. They're just good for flicking rockets at me. <laughs> yeah. And the photo of Chris with the belt around his arm after being shot was included with a brief bio and description about him and his work. And from that moment on, he received a ton of press. He was titled Chris Burden, the evil Knievel of the art world. (laughs) I could just imagine 1973 people being like, oh my, what is happening (laughs) to the world? (laughs) Um, Some people thought he was a genius and creating an entirely new form of art and others thought he was a lunatic just trying to get attention. Um, And Chris said in an old interview with Regis, quote, Evil Knievel and I are two completely different people. I am about art and I'm about trying to do a quality thing in art and Evil Knievel does the same thing over. He's a stuntman kind of art. You know he's a trickster and I'm not a trickster. Everything I do is for real. Wait, Regis and he, Kathy Lee, or what Regis are we talking about? Regis Philbin. Phil, phil, oh, phil. really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How many Regises do you know? Yeah, Regis, just Re, one. How many Regis? <laughs> just check. <laughs> the Regis. Regis. <laughs> I just can't imagine Chris Burden talking to Regis, but I guess it happened. It was in the documentary. It was so cute. He was like all 70s and in this like orange plaid suit with like curly Obviously. dark hair. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I don't think Regis understood his work. Yeah. Well, that's why I was so confused. It's just a weird pairing. Um, then in 1973, from May 25th to June 10th, he did a piece called BC Mexico. And there's just a photo of him standing next to a kayak and then a video of him kayaking in the ocean. And he said... I did a piece where I disappeared without prior notice to anybody. I just left. There was, in fact, an audience. The audience being, where is Chris? Where is Chris Burden? We haven't seen him. What happened to him? But then his friend said from school, like, I didn't even know he disappeared or that he was missing. (laughs) So I guess I was part of the piece, but... uh, Because, like, Chris came back and was like, didn't you notice I was missing? He was like, no. (laughs) Well, wait, who did it first? This guy or the other guy who never came back? Who never came back? I don't remember. What was his name again? I know. How did you find this so quickly? <laughs> Look, Google. An artist was... who paddled out to the ocean and never came back. <laughs> Surfer Magazine is just coming up over and over. Maybe no, he was paddled. 
Isn't that how you get out like, to ocean? Artist you know? who sailed? sailed. Yeah, who sailed away. Boss and John. Boss. Boss. Boss yeah. Jan Otter. Yeah. Oh, boss. Boss Jan Otter. Sorry, paddled is a problem. What year boss. did he do oh, it? Oh, fuck. I closed it. <laughs> Becky, what year was what? it? Oh, uh, he disappeared in 1975, North Atlantic Ocean. Ooh, two years later. Oh, Chris did it first. first. Hey, he, he went to Otis, guys. Did he? Yeah, it says education. Claremont graduate, University Otis College of Art and Design. <gasps> what? I think we knew that. Wait. <laughs> I'm teaching you guys go, wait, something uh, on your own podcast. We should go back because now I feel like, no, we didn't know that. That's I weird. I don't think we did. So <laughs> Chris said about his piece... I was dropped off in San Felipe, Mexico, on the Sea of Cortez, in a small canvas kayak. I he paddled. I paddled. <laughs> so- <laughs> Maybe that's why it was in my mind. Yeah, I paddled southward to a remote beach, carrying some water with me. I survived there for eleven days. The average daily temperature was hundred and twenty degrees. Hmm. On June, how did he know that? I don't know. Yeah, I call bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Um, maybe he was at a resort with like pina coladas being brought to him. <laughs> he just he took his phone out there just with had him. To disappear for a little bit. On June seventh, I paddled back to San Felipe and was driven to Los Angeles. The piece had been announced as a show by New Space, and during my stay in Mexico, a notice in the gallery informed visitors of my absence. On June tenth, at New Space, I showed a short movie of my departure and read a diary I had kept, and that was it. You could have just gone for a little jaunt and then came back. So if I decide I really need a vacation, I just disappear. Mm -hmm. And then when I come back, I'm like, guys, it's art. I'm telling you, you could go to sleep and it's art. You can paddle Mm -hmm. out in Mexico and it's art. You can get shot. You can get shot. Just like you've always fantasized about. (laughs) (laughs) On my walks with my dog. Mm -hmm. And then the artwork, rather than the photograph, can just be a screenshot of your text message. Not my call history. No, there would be no call history. There's just no no. calls. It's like a screenshot of your no calls and then of all your text messages. I'm bleeding out. (laughs) FYI, I'm bleeding. Just so you know. Um, It's 120 degrees out here. (laughs) I checked my weather app. Well, since you have an iPhone, you could record your screen. So you just text and then you open, you know, your weather. You could be a video performance artist. Those are the two best kinds of art. Especially when you combine them. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'll just I'll just inform inform my husband. I have a new career. Yeah. You hang out with Lindsay for three hours and this is your life. I'll be like, you need to just keep working because I need someone to support me uh-huh. in my artistic venture. You're just staying in bed and Patrick's like, wait, <laughs> explain this art to me. <laughs> you just crawl in the cupboard under your sink. You're like, it's art, babe. <laughs> yeah. I'm measuring it out. Is this two by two by two? I'll be in here for five days. Don't bother don't, me. Don't move this water that's on the countertop above me. I need it. Also, do not look in that bucket over there. <laughs> Okay, this is another piece that he's super famous for, and it's called Transfixed, and it was performed on April 23rd, 1974 in Venice, California. This is the infamous work where Chris nails himself to the back of a Volkswagen bug. You can't nail both your hands. No, he had someone, yeah. Yeah. His wife was supposed to do the nailing. (laughs) You can. Um, Same wife. 
Yeah, same wife. It's been so long. I'm really. She was proud happy of her. to do it. I bet. <laughs> <She's> like, <laughs> <laughs> she was supposed to do it, but she backed out. She was like having a ton of anxiety. She's like, I don't want to be involved. Okay. And then none of his friends wanted to do it. He put so much pressure on his I know, friends. <laughs> But none of his friends wanted to do it. He did tons mm. of research before about the best place to insert the nail and to do the least harm and least pain. And he had, in the documentary at least, there was all these like anatomical diagrams. And he was always like feeling his hands. Okay, but people's anatomy, are di- it's different. It's not all exactly the same. I don't think Chris knew that. Also, if you're <laughs> having a friend do it and not a, a medical professional, yeah. I don't think it really matters how much research you do. They're still going to fuck it up. You think his attorney did it? Probably. To <laughs> <laughs> be like, this will keep you in yeah. one spot for a while. Don't do anything, Chris. Also, as an artist, to nail your hands, that is so risky. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't I mean, like he loves it. Or religious. Or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, what's it called when you say the Lord's name in vain? <laughs> oh, blasphemy. Blasphemy. Yeah. Isn't yeah. it blasphemy to nail yourself to something like the Lord? <laughs> I don't know. If it's a Volkswagen bug, I think it's okay. (laughs) okay. (laughs) So viewers were told to arrive at a certain place outside of this garage at a certain time. And then at that certain time, the doors would open. And then when the doors opened, the car was on full throttle for two minutes, as he quoted, screaming for him. Uh, The very instant it's made, it starts becoming a myth, he said. Uh, and that the only requirement for his work is that it needed for someone to take photographs of it. Because um, then that turns into the piece, obviously. But the myth is like basically what he's known for. But he was saying like the best outcome would be if the car exploded or something like that. <laughs> of course. And he was like, <laughs> the, the fact that it... <laughs> best outcome, outcome would be if I died. That'd yeah. be better. Well, he was like, the car was screaming for him. And then he was asked like, so is the best outcome if it like exploded in... I don't know if that was supposed to be like in agony for him. And he was like, yeah, it would have ended a lot sooner. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Becky looks so confused. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel, I kind of like feel for Chris a little bit where I'm like, dude, this guy is just one cry for help after another. And he's like, no one is getting yeah, it. Truly. Like, <laughs> his friends are just like taking photos. Like, you're great. And he's just like, what do like, I what's have Chris to do? Gonna, crazy Chris, what's he going to do next? Yeah, what kind of friends? They're like, I guess I'll nail you to this mm-hmm. if you really want me to. Can you imagine how much pain it would be having nails driven through your hands? Mm-hmm. And, and then the car is like probably rattling and you're like attached to it. But I mean, if you look, he's not actually like, I mean, there's not a lot of weight in his hand. So at least he's not like getting pulled down. I don't know. How soon does it heal? I'm not a hand surgeon, Lindsay. I don't know. (laughs) You're our science person. (laughs) Yeah. You just did simple (laughs) subtraction and now you're our science person. (laughs) Okay. I can be a science person. So maybe he got some stitches, but I actually don't think, I mean, because you see in the picture, it's not that big. I mean, I don't know when those were taken, but- I would say that's like maybe five millimeters. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds right. Sure. <laughs> I knew you guys wouldn't contradict me. Be like, no. <laughs> also, it's not like a big laceration, you know? It's not like. Right. Like I think a and hole, if it's just through a and puncture through, like, yeah. would heal. But I just I just think about like, you remember like and as you were a kid, like if you like accidentally got stabbed with a sharp pencil mm-hmm. or something, how badly that hurt. Well, mm-hmm. I sometimes slam my pens closed in their caps and I'll miss and I... What? Ja- <laughs> Why? Why do you continually do that? That seems Why like a one-time so mistake. 
finished now. <laughs> Done with no. writing. I'd like put the cap on and then I go to like smack it <laughs> in my. That's literally what my three year old does, Lizzie. <laughs> <laughs> I want to pee my pants. Oh my god. <laughs> These caps are hard to close. <laughs> So I just put so it in my hand and go. It's like, no, they're really they're firm. So I just go pop, hmm. and then I so set it this aside. Way. Yeah. Okay. But like, <laughs> what, what? How much air are you getting to come down on your hand? <laughs> oh goodness. So that was transfixed. His second most, I would say, his second most famous performance piece. Good yeah. times with Chris. Yep. That's what this episode's gonna be called. Good, good times, times with Chris. It's <laughs> a good one. Um. Continuing the good times. So in 1975, he moved to New York City with his wife, Barbara, and they were there for a few months. And then it became clear that the marriage was not going so well. She's a trooper. Yeah. Proud of her. While they were in New York, Alexis Smith, who's a fellow artist, wrote to them and asked if she could come stay with them for a little bit. And then Chris and her started to have an affair while Barbara was at work. Wow, that's fucked up. Working for Chris. Let's clarify. So... Yeah. Wow. Wait, is she still working for Chris at this point? <laughs> yeah, she was. Yeah. Wait, the wife is working for him now? Or well, this no, no, no. no. Working, sorry, working. Like, I'm working like, to support him. For, like, you know, to oh, support gotcha. him. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. I'm like, what is she doing? Yeah, so she's working. Sorting the hospital bills. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Talking to lawyers. <laughs> yeah. There's probably quite a bit of work to yep. do. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, wow, what a dick. Yeah, so I'm yeah. Mad at him for that. and Alexis started having an affair. And then Chris was invited to do a piece in Cleveland, and he did a piece called Confession, where he confessed to his extramarital affair, a fact his wife was unaware of prior to watching this oh, performance. No. So I always thought about if Usher, like the if his girlfriend at the time mm-hmm. knew <laughs> his confession. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that anyways. would be horrible. Yeah. So this is like that. So Barbara had no she claimed she had like a feeling and then she saw his piece and was like she's like i should have freaking nailed him to that Volkswagen." <laughs> yeah man um okay so the next piece is called doomed 1975 in april 1975 mca or museum of contemporary art chicago presented what has now been recognized as one of burden's most seminal and controversial performances Doomed, organized in conjunction with the exhibition Body Works and curated by Ira Licht. Burden's performance was one of four artist events, along with Burden, Vito Conchi, Lori Anderson, and Dennis Oppenheim were also invited to perform in the galleries, which I know all three of these people for the first time. Yay. I don't. <laughs> I don't. Burden entered the gallery around 8.20 p.m. on Friday, April 11th, 1975. In his words, the performance, quote, consisted of three elements, myself, an institutional wall clock, and a five by eight foot sheet of plate glass. And per his request, without explanation of what was going to happen, the sheet glass was placed horizontally, leaned against the wall at a 45 degree angle. The clock was placed to the left of the glass at eye level. And he said when the performance began, the clock was running at the correct time. I entered the room and reset the clock to 12 midnight. And then he crawled against the wall under the plate of glass and then just laid there. 
And there was a huge crowd of visitors and spectators at the beginning of the performance, about like 400 people showed up, and media coverage increased the longer Burden remained under the glass. But as it became unclear what was happening, everyone was super excited and like, oh, what's he going to do? And then he was just lying there. And then people started to get up and leave. They're like, I guess he's not doing anything. They're like, um, it could be 22 days. He did that before. Yeah. Uh, as it became unclear what was happening or what was supposed to happen, people began to leave. People were unsure if he was going to break the glass, if viewers were supposed to break the glass. Like it just became a waiting game. And the museum had no idea what was going on because it was just not discussed. And so through their indecisiveness, they decided to just let the piece continue as it hit time to close the museum. And Chris didn't plan for this, I guess. He just thought like when the museum closed, it'll be over. But the museum's like, Chris's performance is still going. So we'll just keep, no, no. keep the museum open. <laughs> That's what you get, Chris. Yeah. That's what you fucking Lack get. Lack of planning. <laughs> yeah. So... Then, so it started on Friday night, yeah, 8.20 p.m. So at some point on Saturday, a museum employee, Dennis O'Shea, who's now the MCA's manager of technical production, he rented a video camera and began documenting the performance. Smart. He said, it was in the air. No one knew what it was exactly, but that lack of clarity was, in some ways, a part of what made Burden's piece so exciting. As Burden explained... I was prepared to lie in this position indefinitely until one of three elements was disturbed or altered. The responsibility for ending the piece rested with the museum staff, but they were unaware of this crucial aspect. The piece ended, finally, when Dennis O'Shea placed a container of water inside the space between the wall and the glass. And Dennis did this because a doctor who came to look at the piece said that Chris would die of uremic poisoning if he didn't get some water. And so he grabbed a bottle of water and put it next to Chris. And then that disturbed one of the three elements. And so 45 hours and 10 minutes after the start of the piece, Chris was finished. He immediately got up and left and then re-entered and smashed the face of the clock with a hammer, recording the exact time which had elapsed from the beginning to end. But he came back in the room with a hammer and everyone's like, Oh, no. <laughs> What's going to happen? <laughs> Dennis thought he was going to die for a second. He was like, <laughs> I tried to help him and now he's going to kill me. So he had smashed the clock. And interestingly, this marked the ending of the body of performance-based work for Chris, um, which he is so well known. Interesting. After the piece ended, Burden said that he, quote, kept thinking that the museum wasn't worried about me. And they've decided that if my intent is to, you know, die of thirst or something, <laughs> then they're going to go along with it. Now he is like going to blame other people for his <laughs> yeah. reputation. Like, that's not their fault. Mm -hmm. They're like, Chris, we don't know what you're going to do. Yeah. And he's like, do you not care about me? <laughs> All of a sudden. No one he's probably still a little hurt that like people didn't realize mm -hmm. that he was gone when he disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> Help me. I'm right here. Dead is killed. And then he came in with a hammer. And they're like, I shouldn't have cared. <laughs> we care. We care. <laughs> okay. So then there's Big Wheel 1979. So at this point... He had a studio at the back of a Chinese laundry on Pico Boulevard back in L.A., and this is where he made the big wheel. He envisioned this huge flywheel and wanted to make it the 
biggest wheel he could and make it go as fast as he could, which just sounds like the most boy <laughs> piece I could imagine. Make it big. Make it go big fast. fast. His studio mate um, said that the scary component was that if it broke loose on one mm. side, the massive eight by 10 foot cast iron wheel would have spun around like a top and taken out everything <laughs> in like a 10, 20, 30 foot radius, including them. But let's give it a shot. That was Chris's hope. The thought that people could die. Olive, do you want to describe what it looks like? Oh, sure. I'm so bad at this. <laughs> it looks like a hamster wheel. It's a gigantic yeah. hamster wheel with with like supporting beams. Yeah, made of cast iron. And there's a guy with a motorcycle attached to the front of it. And the wheel, the back wheel of his motorcycle is touching the, the gigantic hamster wheel. And so presumably when the guy revs the engine and the wheel goes, it makes the gigantic wheel go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when he's spinning it, Chris or whoever is now in charge of showing the piece, they get on his motorcycle and it's actually Chris's motorcycle. And yeah, he revs it up and spins the wheel super, super fast, as fast as it can, and then moves the motorcycle a little bit forward um, and then just lets it spin 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 when he's sitting on the motorcycle he's like half the height of the wheel so chris said at 600 rpm the wheel explodes shatters i remember once i referred to it as the neanderthal atomic bomb i could see putting it in the guggenheim and getting it to spin so fast that it explodes and destroys the museum <laughs> that would be pretty nice <laughs> Yeah. What the heck? That would be so nice. We I love that. I just want to destroy the Guggenheim. <laughs> it just amazes me that this guy has friends. <laughs> like yeah. that, you know. I wonder if it's just like a constant cycling of friends. Like he has friends, then they discover who he really is, and yeah, then they're like, like we keep their distance. Then he gets new friends. Like he's charming and seems yeah. so cool. Yeah. His voice is nice. Like, it could oh. be good on a podcast. Yeah. 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 Jonathan Gold, the food critic, and Ed Ruscha both said the sculpture made everyone nervous. Um, <laughs> for, and so my statement was that first Chris was creating the tension with the actions of his body. And even now in his sculptures, he's creating that tension and the potential for danger and harm like still exists in his sculptures. <laughs> this is when he starts to actually lose it in the late 70s and early 80s. So losing it. Dot, this, dot, is, dot. this is this is when yep, this yeah. is when he's this actually, is the beginning. This is when his friends. Start, so the rest of this time, this has been him altogether. Yeah, his friends are like, <laughs> OK, you're really smart. You're going to change the art world. And now his friends are like, I don't think we can hang out with you. Mm -hmm. So, well, no one got him a therapist. That's the problem. These things don't get better just randomly. So yeah. I think one of the pieces that made people particularly nervous, too, was he was doing something where he bought or rented like a semi-truck and would just drive around everywhere kind of mm -mm. crazily no um <laughs> no. recording it but then also artists began to create some distance from him because quote it was common to be with chris when he was acting up and scaring the shit out of you like he would just drive around recklessly and you know and when he would get pulled over, he's like, no, 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 this is art. You can't give me a ticket. <laughs> you talk to my attorney. Yeah. I just he's license. right here in the passenger seat. <laughs> so friends, as well as Alexis Smith, all said he could get pretty crazy. Apparently, he had fantasies of walking down sketchy alleys in L.A. where he hoped people would try to attack him so he could have an excuse to take out his gun. Mm. He went to the studio and told his studio mate, the same one about the spinning flywheel, mm. um, 
that he just had to shoot off all of his guns at a bunch of glass bottles in his studio. Mm. He's like, I have paintings in here, man. Don't. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so his studio mate moved to like the front of the studio because he was scared about stray bullets going through the wall that was like dividing their studio and hitting him. Then he decided to get an Uzi and then he would start shooting his Uzi nonstop. And he even (laughs) spoke about wanting wanting to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of Shoot by shooting Jonathan Gold in the arm. Oh, my God. And Jonathan Gold's like, yeah. (laughs) No, thanks. So... Um, with the Uzi, <laughs> he's like, I've like, seen I'm you crazy. at your I'm studio just, just shooting your Uzi all the time. I think no is my answer. Um, and then friends said that he was most productive when he was with Barbara, and then once they had split, he just unraveled. He was pretty unraveled before. I mean, yeah. just from an outsider's perspective, <laughs> mm-hmm. but this is next level, though. Makes me sad for him. Mm-hmm. Um. In 1981, Chris bought property in Topanga Canyon, but he ended up not moving there for another three years until 1984. And when he moved to Topanga, where he lived and had a studio for the rest of his life, friends said that it was probably his way of slowing down and creating a safe space between himself and the art world. I love this next piece so much. It's my favorite. Is it? It's, yeah, it's one of my favorites. So this is Beam Drop, 1984. George really liked this piece too, which surprised me. Did he? That's Mm -hmm. surprising, yeah. Yeah. So originally created at Art Park, a sculpture park in New York, but destroyed three years later, the work was recreated at Inhotem in 2008 in an action that could be called performance art. For 12 hours, a 45-meter high crane dropped the 71 beams, which are the construction, you know, they're like the... Big iron beam, yeah. like a steel beam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, the crane would drop these varying sizes of construction beams from 45 meters high into a pool of fresh concrete. So then they all harden, and then it's just like a square of concrete with a bunch of beams coming up in random directions. That's so cool. Was he operating the crane? <laughs> I sure hope not. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. The random pattern of the beams resulted in the artist's control of the crane. Oh, my God. (laughs) The artist's control of the crane combined with the inherent randomness of the beams fall and the extreme violence caused by their massive weight. Um, And at this point in time, people kept asking him about his 70s era performance pieces and whether he can get back to that mentally and if he'll do them again. Which is like it's fucked up. <laughs> Don't so, you want to keep yeah, trying yeah. to die, Chris? We love it when you try to die. It's so upsetting. I'm sure for him as he's trying to like grow and do different things to be like, hey, remember that time you shot yourself? Like, do you think mm-hmm. you're ever going to do that again? Mm-hmm. And like just being remembered for your work when you were 25. Mm-hmm. He like laughs it off and says, "It's like a very very old girlfriend. You remember, but you don't think about it every day." Then in two. <laughs> Hmm. it's an incident yes it is an incident Mm -hmm. in 2005 there was a ucla incident so at this point he was teaching he became a teacher at ucla 
So he's molding, he's molding the new yep. generation of artists. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Jonathan Gold set this up perfectly by saying, his class at UCLA, of course, people had to do performances. And there was always this danger with somebody studying with Chris that they would look at the early work that everyone knows <laughs> and they'd assume oh. that doing something with violent overtones was something that Chris would thoroughly love. So the brief performance that happened in his class involved a simulation of Russian roulette in which the student appeared before the class holding a handgun, had two bullets and put in what appeared to be one of the bullets, spun the cylinder, then pointed the gun at his head and pulled the trigger. The weapon didn't fire. The student quickly left the room. Then the audience, well, the other students, heard a shot from outside. Everybody was scared to leave the classroom because they all thought he had just killed himself. Chris said the university blamed him for for this, faculty saying, what do you expect? Look at what you did. Chris said, wait, no, we are the parents here. We're the ones that have to say no. In an act whose irony appeared lost on no one, Mr. Burden and his wife, his new wife, Miss Rubin, both faculty members at UCLA, resigned from the university in protest in 2005. At issue was their displeasure at UCLA's failure to discipline the art student. Yeah, seems a little hypocritical, but I think it's really different because Chris was never actually not in school. No, he was never actually trying to kill himself. He was always more interested in creating the potential for danger and tension and like it was about setting up the situation. I think that's the the main difference in what I noticed between the work is I think Chris was a lot more thoughtful about what he was intentionally creating in a space, right? Like he was interested in engaging the viewers and, you know, the tension is in their participation. The student was just going in and doing something of potential extreme violence. Yeah, I agree to some extent, but I also feel like Chris created some really potentially dangerous environments. I mean, like hoping the wheel would go so fast that it came off the thing. Like it could, right? And there could be people in there. And so it's like he still was... I mean, I agree that this person, but he didn't. He didn't create it to fall apart, right? Like there was always, like it could. Yeah, definitely. I think the thing that is a little different is like he, in his mind, the danger was there, but no one really knew what was going on with Chris's work. Whereas this one, I feel like it's the same in what the what the kid did outside of the classroom, where like no one knows if he shot himself or somebody else or whatever but the bullet in the chamber in front of everybody was yeah a problem but mm-hmm. i just feel like How it's a kid a, bringing a loaded gun to campus <laughs> yeah like chris yeah. wasn't in school so i think that's a huge difference but it i guess the the hypocrisy maybe feels a little bit like him speaking on it like it was our failure to discipline the student like mm-hmm. that seems a little too far like chris I mean, I agree with him, but like, I don't know. He did lots of really dangerous things around people that it could have gone really awry. So for him to be like, we should really crack down on. While you're in like an institution, it is the faculty's responsibility to say like, no, that's not appropriate. And oh, I agree once you him. get out and you have your own space, you know, you can shoot people in the arm or pretend to play a Russian roulette or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in a space like this where people aren't, voluntarily showing up to something you know like they have to be in class they have to attend critiques things like that 
don't traumatize them. Oh, I absolutely agree with him. I'm just saying it's a little hypocritical coming from his mouth. <laughs> and Even that's though what, I that's agree what, that it's like nuanced because he was so thoughtful and all that. I still think it just feels a little off coming from him. Yeah. Well, that's what faculty said. And that's where I feel like he's a little bit cursed by his past in that sense where like, I think he was more intelligent. I don't know this artist, but I think his work is more clever than that. And I think mm -hmm. he's misunderstood by the intensity of his work and that people only see it for being super extreme and not mm -hmm. all of the the thought that went into it. And so when people just kind of throw, it's like, you did all of this stuff. Um, they see it at a very like surface level of the work. And then they're like, well, you did this. Um, like, what do you expect? And then he feels further misunderstood and like haunted by his performance pieces. And mm -hmm. then I get why he's decided to resign when he's like met with that kind of criticism. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Are you guys ready to learn about probably his most famous sculpture ever? Ready. Yes. Urban Light, 2008. So this is possibly, I think, the most LA thing about LA aside from the Hollywood sign. Wouldn't you agree, Olive? Yeah. Yes. Like this is become like when you just drive by it and hundreds of people every day are just taking photos in these lights which is like mm -hmm. such a iconic space now yeah urban light is installed at like in the courtyard of lacma in los angeles and it's composed of 202 street lamps arranged in a near grid the lamps mostly came from southern california including hollywood glendale and anaheim with some from portland oregon and he said, quote, they are not about me as an individual artist or my creation as an artist. People just enjoy them and they get great pleasure from them. They could care less who the artist is. In a certain way, that's fine for me because it means that the artwork is bigger than the maker. Chris first started collecting the street lamps in December 2000 without a specific work in mind. So like at his studio in Topanga, he just has tons of random things he's collecting and that he's going to find things for. All of these fountain turtles that he wanted to make a turtle fountain sculpture of. He had this trolley train thing that was a prop in a Disney movie. He had like all these lamps and lamp pieces around. Like he just kind of collects things. That would be my nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> like a hoarder's place. I'd be like, we're having a garage sale. <laughs> yeah. He just collected things and just waited for the idea to come. So he started Also just spending $800 willy-nilly at, at the Rose Bowl flea market is on lamps. Being like, <laughs> I don't know what I'll do with this, but here's $800. I'll buy them. <laughs> Yep. Art pays bills. Yeah. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> so he purchased his first two lamps at the Rose Bowl flea market for $800. He eventually bought all of this guy's lamps. So, like the original owner is this guy named Jeff Levine, Levine. And Jeff told him, I knew you would come someday. And Chris explained he was so happy that he was able to take Jeff's vision and be able to complete it because Jeff had a dream of buying 10 acres with this really long driveway and install 150 lamps up the driveway. But his family thought of him as a pack rat and hoarder, and they witnessed the installation of Jeff's former lamps at LACMA, and <laughs> he felt, like, vindicated uh, with his family because, you know, we got That's to see, awesome. like, what he had imagined for them. I mean, Jeff's the real winner here. Yeah. He got <laughs> vindication, and then also 
a nice sum of money in his bank account. (laughs) These old lamps. Yep. Probably not as much as Chris got. So Burden purchased others from contractors and a collector, Anna Justice, who was instrumental in the restoration of sandblasting and recasting missing parts and rewiring to code and then painting them the uniform gray. So she was probably the most important piece. So cool. You think they let him operate the crane? (laughs) Not this time. (laughs) He like keeps trying to sneak in. They're like, Chris, go. This was part of the deal, Chris. You have to just watch. (laughs) So then there was Metropolis 2 in 2011. This is the one I saw. Mm -hmm. In 2011. Um, So it's a kinetic sculpture and it was built by a team of eight people who began work in 2006 in his Topanga studio and it was unveiled there in 2011 and then reinstalled at LACMA in its own little specially designed gallery room with a viewing balcony. Measuring almost 10 feet by 20 feet by 12 feet high, Metropolis 2 depicts an imaginary city traversed by gravity-powered custom-cast cars, 1,080 miniature vehicles, as well as electric trains. Materials include building blocks, Lego blocks, and Lincoln logs. The cars travel along 18 Teflon-coated tracks, including a six-lane freeway at scale speeds ranging from bumper to bumper to 240 miles per hour. When the cars reach the bottom, they are connected by magnets to three conveyor belts and raised back up to the top of the sculpture. Burden said that the goal was not to create a literal scale model of a city, but to evoke a city's energy. Lastly, his final piece, Ode to Santo Dumont, which opened on May 18th, 2015. Chris came across an early Brazilian aviator, Santo Dumont, in 1901. He won a prize for going on a set course flying around the Eiffel Tower. He decided he needed to make a sculpture that was an ode to this historic event. He worked on building this blimp slash dirigible for years with inventor John Biggs. And during that time, his cancer had spread, though he didn't want that information to be shared with anyone. So it's this, um, it's like a long, I don't know, I would say like 20 foot blimp in a gallery space with this little motor on the like metal, you know, metal pieces that you can build stuff out of. Looks like a scaffold. Yeah, it's like toy, it's like toy scaffolding, basically. And there's a motor on it and it propels it forward. And then there's these little cables that's at the front and the back of it. And it's anchored in the center. So it just like does this circle around the gallery space. But the motor's on for a little bit and then the motor cuts out and then it just glides around the room. John said, I was standing with him and there's this moment when the motor cuts out and it's just this graceful peel away as it just quietly moves on. And I turned to Chris to see his reaction and he was just like, Wow, there it is, man. That's the moment. John asked him how he was doing, and Chris said, You know, it's going to be what it's going to be, and that's okay. And then five days before the opening of Ode to Santo Dumont, Chris passed away. And John said, Every time I see the blimp has its moment, Chris is there with it. I can see him. Ah, there it is. There's the moment. And it's so rare to have those moments. And Chris really understood them. It made him happy. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Chris died on May 10th, 2015. 
18 months after having been diagnosed with melanoma. He was 69. That's too young. I mean, even though he tried to die a few times, but that's still too young. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Everyone who's listening to this must go watch the documentary Burden. It was originally available on Hulu, but now you can rent it on Amazon Prime and watch it. And it's definitely worth the $3 to rent it. Because Jeff has to go to the moon again or whatever. The other Jeff. Bezos. Oh, (laughs) gotta go to the moon. What's what's Jeff doing? I'm like, that's the Jeff that listens to this. (laughs) Yeah, you didn't know. That's the Jeff. Um, So I got basically all of my information from the documentary, along with Wikipedia, LACMA, a place called it's ubu.com. Um, Ubu, Ubu. It was a really good documentary. It's so good. Yeah. And that's not all of Chris's work, but it is a great deal of it. You didn't cry. Nice job. I was yeah, so glad. I, was, I could, I could I know, feel I could my heart. It. Like, I thought we were thumping. getting tears. <laughs> I could I, hear you almost crying, and then yep. it made me almost cry, yeah. <laughs> and I was tearing up, and then I'm like, get it together. Yep. Well, yeah. I heard her voice, then I looked at you, and I was like, oh, God, am I going to be the only one not crying? <laughs> well, also, nope. having seen the documentary, I can remember, like, the video of the blimp going mm-hmm. around, and, and like... It's so poetic, Interviews, too. yeah. And interviews with him, and you're kind of... It just gives you a different feeling. Mm-hmm. But in school, when I would see Chris's work or hear about it, it just felt like he was such a bro artist in my mind, you know? (laughs) And I felt the same. I didn't understand. mm -hmm. And then when I watched the documentary, I was like, oh, he's amazing. And that's why, like, I think it is upsetting. Well, and this is the problem with the student, too. He's reduced to, oh, the guy who shot himself Mm -hmm. and... When you don't have any other information, um, obviously it changes how you see him. But when you see all this other stuff, you realize that was just an example of how he took more chances than other people and really was like clear in his confidence for like what he wanted to do and Mm -hmm. what he was interested in and how he thought through things. Yeah, Um, and he said in interviews, like, he never actually wanted to die. Like, he didn't mm want to die doing his work. He just liked creating those environments for it. Yeah. I mean, and he didn't really even mean to get shot for real. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That just went awry, but... uh, (laughs) That's what happens when you put other 25-year-olds in charge of guns. Yeah. That's a lot of trust to put in a friend, though. To right? Be like, you're just going to graze it, right? <laughs> just graze my arm. Yeah. Like, do you think they had any, like, practice <laughs> sessions before? Well, same with the hands. I would never trust anyone to mm-hmm. hammer a nail through my hand unless they were a trained. It's nerve-wracking, though, to do that, yeah. though. Like, do you, yeah, sure, I'll do that for you. Well, when you would nail through someone's hand, too, you don't want to be too hesitant mm-hmm. too because like that's even oh. worse where you just like like Lindsay putting her pen cap on like missing you just do it, it like doesn't you actually that. break skin one time oh my one time my dad hammered my hand with a mallet really hard oh god jeez what did you do i've ever gotten well we were working she smashed his tv with a brick yeah i was just gonna say he was so mad we were working on a shelf together and he was doing it and he just wasn't watching very well and he just smashed my hand straight how old were you this was like this year oh oh (laughs) 
and I was just, and he didn't even know. And I was like, so you just hit my whole hand. And he was like, oh, did I? Like, yes. He's like, you need to pay more attention to your, where your hands are. That's what he said, actually. Okay, wait. So, Becky, what do you think? What just coming from had no idea where you were going. Definitely no idea where I was going. <laughs> Did not think it would be this direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think when I think art, not knowing anything about art, I think it's just that general idea of like, oh, somebody painted something or somebody sculpted something. Uh, and so this is definitely a new world for me. Pretty interesting. So, Olive, what did you think about Chris Burden? I didn't learn anything new because I. it's kind of reminding me of the documentary, but um, but when I watched the documentary for the first time, I learned tons of new things and I loved him and I didn't think that I was going to, I just had no context, but I do think he was incredibly thoughtful and smart. And I loved, I just love, I guess I just have a lot of jealousy around like people who see things through for a long time because I'm just not that person. I make something and if it takes longer than a few days, it's hard for me to finish it. (laughs) And so, but I like love, I love the idea and I have ideas sometimes that would take too long. And then I just scratch them because I'm like, well, that's never going to happen. But like the lamps, like it's so beautiful and I would love to pull that off, but there's no way I would ever just start buying up lamps and contact someone (laughs) to figure out how to get them lit, you know, like all those things. So Mm -hmm. I really respect, or like, I would love to make that huge concrete piece. It's so cool. Mm -hmm. So he really has like just a way about making these long-term things happen that I really love. So you like his sculptures more than his performances? Yeah. I mean, I like his performances too, but I'm just, um, I guess I'm just more drawn to things that have a life. I mean, obviously his performances have a life after like people are still talking about them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, what's interesting about them. But I do love things that have a life of their own in the way that the lamps do. Yeah. He's just cool as fuck. Really? I really like him. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Hopefully everyone else enjoyed this episode too. Okay. Well, thank you, Chris. Yeah, I thanks, almost cried. I thought you were going to say thank you, Becky. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> thanks, Chris. I mean, for you're existing. welcome. <laughs> thank you, Chris. Thanks, Becky, for coming on. And thank you, Becky. This. My pleasure. Thanks for having thank me. Thanks. This was fun. Is there stuff we have to say at the end or not? You guys uh, know. Nope. I love you. Goodbye. We- love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Say bye, Becky. Oh, bye. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. Fired.